It's Pride Month, motherfuckers. So let's talk about the Lavender Scare. This is Black Sheep and Bad Apples, a podcast where I, your host, Lauren O'Brien, learn about my kind of blind spots in history and teach what I learned to my friends. And this week, we're going to talk about the motherfucking Lavender Scare. And we're going to do that with my buddy, Terry. How you doing, buddy? How's it going, Lauren? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm also doing well. I heard it's considerably sweatier up there than it is down here. It's like, I think, 64 degrees in the sun. It's nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, and the sun is at least 100 degrees. In the shade, the gauge is showing 90-something. Jesus. Are you uh, are you getting a lot of the smoke from up in the Canales since you're up into North uh, Dakota? It, it's been in the air. I know when we drove in, uh, you could definitely see the smoke in the air. Yeah. Well, Terry, before we jump into this, I want to ask you really quick, how do you feel about privacy? Um, I like my privacy. You like you like <laughs> privacy? That's good. Yes. And uh, do you think it's cool and good for a government to invade that privacy? Absolutely not. Okay. Okay. Good good questions. Good que- or good good answers anyway. And uh how do you feel about a government violating constitu- violating constitutionally protected privacy in order to accuse people of not loving the USA because they're gay? Uh I call that a bunch of BS. Yeah, it's probably probably not a good thing. Well, cool. I'm glad that you're going to you're uh you're going to like what we go into here. It seems that you're on um the the side of history as we look back. So, yeah. Terry, since we're talking about the lavender scare, we're we, we've got a meal for us to eat, right? And But we can't do that without first setting our table. So we're going to go back in history a little bit and then kind of walk back up to the uh, to the Lavender Scare. And uh, we got to do that by first discussing the, the first Red Scare. The first Red Scare happened directly after the Bolshevik Revolution during 1917. During the revolution, the Bolsheviks overthrew and brutally murdered the Tsars of Russia, which had ruled unbroken for 304 years. So that's pretty cool. It's a really long time, too. Yeah, it's a really fucking long time. Um, <laughs> from its ashes came a communist state led by Vladimir Lenin. This is in Russia, by the way. Fearing communist overthrow in their own country, the United States media began to sensationalize labor strikes in their own country uh, for looking kind of like Bolshevism. Now, Terry, I said the word labor strike, and that that's like poor people asking for more pay and like better working conditions and, you know, can we get a weekend, that kind of stuff. So yeah. the reason why we have unions, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, and U.S. leadership chalked all the U.S. labor strike kind of shit. Um, they chalked all that up as immigrants coming into our country to disrupt the American way of life. By pinning the change in the labor market on poor immigrants rather than politicians and wealthy businessmen, they were able to disrupt American focus rather than you know battling for a change in the system under under which they toiled. Um, American media. Uh, focused on like the workers ang- they focused the workers anger on immigrants and how the immigrants were taking their jobs and bringing in communism and all that kind of bullshit and all of this meant Terry that the reds were coming they're coming again <laughs> that the the russians were going to come and take over oh yeah and so in order to combat the first red scare which again was largely about labor issues the united states created the sedition act of 1918 which according to history.com quote Targeted people who criticize the government, monitoring radicals and labor union leaders with the threat of deportation, end quote. So that's cool. And you can be seditious and then they'll just deport your ass. <laughs> I, so yeah, an easy way to get rid of anybody who was basically doing the opposite of what they wanted. Yeah, more or less. And um, 
A series of anarchist uh, bombings targeted law enforcement and government officials, and that kind of kicked off in 1919. Uh, the following year, the U.S. Attorney General initiated the Palmer Raids, which were, quote, a series of vi violent law enforcement raids targeting leftist radicals and anarchists. They kick off, kicked off a period known as the Red Summer, end quote. And so that's like a really bat big, like, fight during during the summer of 1919. Lots of blood, lots of bombs, and it's bad. Um, labor unions and violent protests would eventually give us weekends, safer working conditions, compensation for injuries obtained on the job, reasonable hours, and things like higher wages. But during the twenties, labor um, during the twenties, labor union members decided because companies began providing co company unions, so like they union numbers started going down because the the companies were like, "You can join us. We're a family. We can do this all together." You know. Um, and so right after uh, World War I, we um, have the first Red Scare. And since both of those went so well, the United States and the rest of the world decided the sequel to World to War would be a banger. At the end of World War II, with the defeat of Nazi Germany, the Soviets had occupied parts of Eastern Europe, including part of Germany. Uh, parts of Germany. Defeated, isolated, and occupied by outside militaries, Germany was no longer a threat. So that's good. We don't have to worry about Germany. Um, however, global patriotism had largely contributed to the fight that had won World War II, and with that kind of surge in national pride also came a surge of paranoia. The U.S. had not been immune to this, and they were paranoid of espionage. As we've talked a little bit about in our Virginia Hall episodes, espionage has taken on a new form and had proven itself during this time to be quite effective at like destabilizing a military for, or uh, a nation from the inside. And uh, the, the Americans had used Virginia to help weaken the Nazis' hold over France so that when they came in and, and started attacking from the outside, uh, Nazi-occupied France was severely crippled. So that's okay. pretty cool. Um, without uniforms, without bullets, without soldiers without that they were camouflaged but in plain clothes this form of warfare was entirely unfamiliar and in order to combat this war the united states needed to adopt adapt its strategies so in 1947 after world war ii the cia was created to gather intelligence about well basically everyone and due to the nature of the work of the cia russia was beginning to look a little suspect after World War II, political and economic tensions between the U.S. and Russia had reached a slow simmer, and the rivalry between the two nations had left the United States with concerns that, quote, communists and leftist sympathizers inside America might actively work as Soviet spies and pose a threat to the United States security, end quote. <laughs> I can hear it on the radio being said just like that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and the, they weren't untrue. Like Russia, uh, or what they were saying wasn't untrue. Like Russia was trying to do espionage and stuff. It's just these people all, like, this was right after Benzedrine was discovered, which is, I believe, uh, a form of, like, methamphetamine. And so, like, oh, okay. a lot of people were doing speed back in the day. And it was really useful yeah. in the spy work because it kept you on, on the edge of your seat, but also, like, if we know anything about people who do meth, they also see things that aren't there and, you know, they, you know, steal light bulbs and shit. So it, it can be, <laughs> it, could, it could be a little counterintuitive, I guess, at some point is what I'm saying. Um, and again, all the, like all this was true um, and it's exemplified by the case of the Rosenbergs, but we're going to get into them uh, here in a little while. So um, the United States was afraid of Bolshevik communism, but Communism was also anything traditional traditional establishments didn't like. Um, so anybody who is like in power, who is like a, I don't know, white Christian man, 
um, that they didn't like this at all. That and they they included things that were they started calling things communist stuff that was like women's suffrage, racial equality, and labor <laughs> issues. <laughs> <laughs> So, so again, there's like a, it's very funny. Um, and the U.S. was quick to label uh, all of these movements as communistic and as such foreign in nature, and more importantly, un-American. And just to press that point just a little bit more, here's another quote from History.com. Quote, FBI Director uh, J. Edgar Hoover was quick to equate any, any kind of protest with communist sub subversion, including the civil rights demonstrations led by Martin Luther King Jr. Hoover labeled King a communist and covertly worked to intimidate and discredit the civil rights leader, end quote. So, because Martin Luther King Jr. did his, his stuff, they were like, "That's he's, he's got to be a communist. There's no way he can't be. And we'll see that. Yeah, because he was speaking his mind, and yeah. they didn't like that. That's really basically all it is. I mean, all, it, and when we look at like the three things that are associated with it, we've got like labor unions. It's people being like, can we just get paid a little bit more? It's women being like, can we have our own bank account? It's black people being like, we just want to be able to, you know, sit at the same part of the bus and drink from the same water fountains. Honestly, you guys are kind of making a big deal out of this. And the establishment is like, absolutely not communist. <laughs> <laughs> That's communist. <laughs> But even over in Russia, I guarantee you they still had the same issues we did when it came to union laws and yeah. uh, female rights and stuff like that, too. Yeah. And so, I'm, I mean... And I mean, thankfully, like, the United States has kind of got its shit together in regards to, like, homosexual, like, the LGBT rights stuff, and you know? Um, but Russia isn't doing so well in that regard. They're very much like... Being gay is an American, um, um, uh, it's a, uh, it's American espionage. And so we've got to arrest anybody who wants to be gay in public. It's really bad. Um, so again, in the United States, communism was, you know, really, really, um, terrible things like equal rights and, you know, this and that and the other thing, but it, over in Soviet Russia, which sounds like the lead up to a bad joke, but it isn't, um, over in Russia, communism was a governmental system built on the idea of like global revolution. The basic idea was their system worked so well that everyone else should have it. Their idea, their ideology is basically it's based upon the expansion of these communist ideals. So if like if you're that country's neighbor or even like another global superpower, one can easily see how like the the position that the Soviet the Soviets are in um, and, and their ideological position, how that could be concerning to you. You know, if you're if you've got a system set up and you're for instance, it'd be like if you lived in a neighborhood and every time you went outside to get the paper, your neighbor came out and loudly yelled, I'm going to turn this whole block into a Christian or a Mormon and I won't stop until I do. Like, you know that you're going to have to deal with that at a certain point. You know, you're going like, to have to prepare yourself for it. And that's kind of what, what the United States is seeing the, the Soviets doing here. They're, they're like, oh God, they're really loud and I guarantee they're going to come over and try to... They think their life is so good because they got this system that they're going to come over here and try to make it ours. And people were just like, God, I don't... I really want to fucking deal with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, since since you know this neighbor won't stop, you kind of have to prepare yourself for it. And doing exactly that, President Truman signed the loyalty order on March twenty first, nineteen forty seven. Also called the Executive uh, Executive Order Nine Eight Three Five, the program made a pro made a requirement to check each and every government employee to see if they were properly patriotic and had the United States' best interests at heart. 
they were seeing if any employees had any loyalties to anybody that wasn't the U.S., but especially Russia. So they're like, all right, now we got to check everyone. We got to like do this, psychoanalyze them. We've got to take every piece of the State Department and government. We have to, to make sure that they're on our side. So that's kind of what the Executive Order 9835 is. It's pretty And, and how would they figure that out? <laughs> Through interviews and just like, so what do you think of my accent, buddy? And then they'd be like, oh. Hey, comrade. And they'd be like, oh, we got you. We got, that's not even my real accent. You know, it was just interviews <laughs> and I'm exaggerating a little bit for humor's sake, but it is just largely interviews and, and sitting people down and being like, so your grandma was from Russia. What's up with that? <laughs> Fair. Yeah. I mean, my great grandparents were from Russia and Germany. Oh shit. Yeah. Back in the twenties. Oh God. <laughs> it's. And so again, this is uh, we're now mo- we've moved into the second red scare where, where this executive order has gone in, and they're like, we got to make sure you love America. Um, and being at being that the you like pride in the United States of America, like a large part of our pride is based upon liberty and personal freedom. Um, people were rightly startled by this that that this new executive order uh, kind of looked into people's personal lives. They were they were like, whoa, this is this is intense. Um, and at this moment, the loyalty order would be, the loyalty order at this moment, like in this moment in time, it would be looked back on as kind of like a semi-reasonable thing in comparison to where it ended up going. Um, and the, so this is the beginning and kind of like the mid-stages of the the, the second Red Scare. Um, and in order to properly set up our story today, we're going to need to introduce the Red and Lavender Scare's most well-known and infamous alarmist, Joseph McCarthy. You ever heard of this guy? Um, uh, no. The only McCarthy I know is Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> and I love her. <laughs> We're going to find out that... So McCarthy is kind of a widely known piece of shit if you're, a, if you're a leftist and looking at kind of like moral panics and stuff. Everybody knows about this guy because he's... Anyway, we'll just get into it because you'll figure it out. You'll build your own opinion. Um, Joseph Raymond McCarthy was born on November 14th, 1908 in Grand Chute, Wisconsin, as the fifth of nine children. He was born to Irish immigrants and dropped out of school at the age of 14 to help the fam- help at the family farm. After a few years, Joe went back to school and, and graduated one year later at the age of 20. He eventually went to college at Marquette University in Milwaukee and graduated with a law degree in 1935. He later went into politics, eventually becoming the 10th District Court Judge in 1939. He was elected to that position, in part, because he was a fucking liar. <laughs> During his campaign... Surprise! Surprise! Yeah, surprise. A politician's a liar? What? Yeah. Well, and as we'll get into later, this is probably the the least problematic thing he did, and it's still extremely problematic. Um, oh, wonderful. During, during his campaign, he claimed his opponent was 73, when in fact they were 66. This discrepancy was like a small detail, but it allowed Joe to allege his opponent was too old to perform the job adequately. Using that leverage, Joe became the youngest 10th District Circuit Court judge at the time. He was 31. And oh, wow. so, so he used this little lie to kind of like, to kind of ply his way into it. He's like, he's too old to run it, but me... I'm young. Look at how baby-faced I am. And and he gets the job. So that's cool. Congratulations, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joe's career as a judge started by just immediately dispatching at, like the many backlog cases he could, flying through them at a rate that most people considered unreasonable. People wondering if he was like ruling on these cases legitimately or just like clearing his docket. 
Um, either way, he was a popular man in Appleton, Wisconsin. His perhaps irresponsible handling of his many cases and the fact he didn't want the U.S. to be involved in World War II attracted controversy. Eventually, he was censured in 1941 for losing evidence in a price-fixing case, which... Feel like that was kind of on purpose. Feel like oh, they yeah. kind of meant to do. They that. lose evidence all the time. Oh, for sure, <laughs> this wasn't this wasn't the first time, and certainly was not the last time that shit happened. On December seventh, nineteen forty-one, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, which forced McCarthy into advocating intervention in World War Two. So they they bomb they bomb Pearl Harbor, and now it's un-American to be against going into World War Two. And so he's like, "Well, I'm the hyper-American guy, so obviously, uh, I got to change." So we're going to war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the next year, in 1942, Joe joined the Marines. He was exempt from military duty as a judge, so the draft didn't apply to him, but he wanted to join the military, specifically the Marines, because it would look on a political resume. He wanted to be a war hero. Of course. Yeah. Then he could possibly run for president one day. Yeah, which is the reason everybody joins the military. It's because they're like, well, in the future, I'm going to try to be president, so obviously I need to go get shot in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> This fucking guy, I, he's such a piece of shit. <laughs> After serving as an intelligence officer for dive bombers for three years. Now, again, I, w I want to read that back to you. As serving as an intelligence officer uh, for dive bombers for three years and attaining the rank of captain, Joe returned to Wisconsin as the war hero he had wanted to be. He was received as a war hero mostly because he lied about it. From a write-up by Professor Autumn C. Lass from Texas Tech University, M McCarthy arrived back home, quote, covered in glory. McCarthy used his service to gain political prestige. For example, he broke his leg during an initiation ceremony, but sent a press release back home stating that he was wounded in battle. <laughs> McCarthy exaggerated... <laughs> <laughs> McCarthy exaggerated his participations in missions and flyovers, and he played up his nickname of Tail Gunner Joe, end quote. Which I don't think is a good nickname, first of all. Well, no, and Tail Gunner would mean that he wasn't intelligent, right? No, yeah, that would mean that he was flying and shooting, but he was gathering intelligence. And he, uh, well, and I think what happened was he was, like, going on recon missions. He was getting in planes, he was mapping stuff out, taking photos of stuff, and uh, that's just as good as shooting a gun at Japanese people, right? So might, why, sure. might as well say that is kind of his thought process. And again, he's fluffing his resume because he wants to be the war hero. You know, he wants to be the uber American. So as I mentioned, he was assigned to intelligence and either like fabricated everything or just heavily exaggerated a lot of his experiences. Um, again, from Autumn C. Last quote, it was during World War II that McCarthy switched his political affiliations from Democrat to Republican. After resigning his commission in 1945, McCarthy regained his district circuit judgeship. Using his judgeship, military service, and his newfound conservatism, McCarthy again ran for, sorry, McCarthy ran for Wisconsin's Senate seat in 1946, end quote. And he won that race. And just two years later, the real McCarthy fuckery would begin. You have any questions so far? No. I, this is fun. All That's right. some crazy white shit. Oh, yeah. He, he, and he gets away <laughs> with so much shit, it's ridiculous. Uh, in 1948, he lobbied before the uh, committee investigating the 1944 Nazi massacre in Malmedy, Belgium. This committee was discussing the, uh, discussing the death sentences given to Nazi soldiers who had committed war crimes. During the hearing... He insulted the Armed Forces Committee members and witnesses to the Nazi massacre. Just to reemphasize that point, McCarthy basically called literal first-hand witnesses, some of them American veterans of war, liars. So keep, keep that in mind as we 
as we go through, as I tell you what the Malmedy Massacre was. Malmedy Massacre occurred when uh, American GIs outgunned and outmanned surrendered to the Nazis in Malmedy, Belgium in 1944. Uh, and according to like uh, the, the laws of war, if you surrender, you're supposed to be taken as a prisoner of war. So mm -hmm. um, most that surrendered were machine gunned to death. Some had their heads smashed with rifle, rifles. Another group was burned alive and or shot in a cafe. I think they were shooting into the cafe as it was burning down, but I couldn't, I don't know. I didn't want to dig too deep into that detail. At the end of the day, the Malmedy Massacre killed 150 people. 84 of those were American POWs. Miraculously, 43 POWs survived. Some of those were testifying. Some of those surviving veterans were being called liars by McCarthy. And to be more... After surviving a giant massacre, yeah. they come back, tell their story. He's like, no, y'all are a bunch of liars. Yeah. Believe me, because I'm a senator. I was also in the military. I, I was tail gunner me. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and to be more fair than I think he deserves, um, I think McCarthy was more pushing back on their stories rather than calling them outright liars. But McCarthy's dead, so fuck him. We're going to call him a liar here. For real. Um, from Smithsonian Magazine, quote, intrepid U.S. investigators gathered in evidence and it uh, conducted in-depth interviews of survivors from both sides. Military prosecutors laid out a vivid portrait of not just this act of barbar barbar barbarity, but the, of the modus operandi of the SS, the most savage of Hitler's war makers, end quote. So again, they've got these investigators laying out war crimes in front of like a committee. Uh, witnesses on both sides are testifying about it. And McCarthy is more or less calling World War II veterans liars and and. and yeah, and he even goes so far as to provide his own explanation for what happened. <laughs> oh, this has to be good. This has to be good. As a counterpoint, McCarthy's narrative was that the Nazis were getting revenge on Americans because the Americans had tortured them earlier in the war, and if any war crimes had been, been committed, it was the Americans that had committed them. Uh, in summary, his alternative narrative was that the individual Nazi soldiers should not be held accountable for the murder of 84 American soldiers, but their general should be. <laughs> Which, ab absolutely, right? Like, if everybody involved, I mean, everybody involved yes, should be in generals, trouble. generals, but the Nazi's a Nazi. Yeah. And we've got fucking Joe fucking McCarthy over here being like, oh, honestly, the Americans were worse, I think. It's like, what yeah, the, the Americans tortured these people, even though that they, you know, gathered up four million Jews and tortured them and all this stuff. But yeah. no, no, we can't, we can't do that to them for sure. And like it, it's just so weird. Anyway, again from from it kind of sounds like a Nazi. It, we're gonna get to that, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, again, from Smithsonian, the primary advocates of this alternative uh, alternate narrative were the uh, the chief defense attorney uh, of the, the Nazi soldiers, the convicted perpetrators, the Nazis, um, their ex-Nazi supporters, some U.S. peace activists, and most surprisingly, the junior senator from Wisconsin, Joseph R. McCarthy. The cause of this ex-Marine and uber-patriot picked as an apologist for the Nazi perpetrators of the bloodiest slaughter of American soldiers during World War II would, more than anything he had done previously, define him for his fellow senators and anybody else playing, paying close attention, end quote. And define him, it did. Between 1947 and 1949, the Capital Times, a daily newspaper in Wisconsin, began attacking, attacking Joe for his defense of literal Nazis. If he had been looking for a push in publicity, he had found it. 
McCarthy responded in 1949 by alleging the editors and writers at the newspaper were communist sympathizers. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> He's going to go on to do... Like, <laughs> like, isn't there any, like, psych evals for these people back in the day? Or is it just, no, you're strong and powerful, you can do whatever you want. Well, and they're doing the psych evals for the communists. You know, they're, but not for the people in charge. Well, not yeah, not for like the fascistic Americans, because at this point he's kind of he's kind of fascist light, but he's going to ramp it up here in a little bit. But he's still American. He's a patriot, and so like all the questions that they ask him, his loyalties he's are a war are, veteran. He's a war veteran. All of his loyalties are in line, so they're not gonna they're not gonna do a psyche val on him again for the the basis of he's too american because that's that's ridiculous it's the 50 almost the 50s when we're talking about this you know he's fine he's just a little he might be he might have more flags than the average american but he's fine so <laughs> um joe's hostility and willingness to lie uh, just about everything um was about to give him the political boost he needed to gain power on february 9th 1950 during a lincoln day event at a Republican women's club, uh, Republican women's club meeting in Wheeling, West Virginia, he repeated the attack strategy he had used against the Capital Times newspaper, but aimed it at the federal government and State Department this time, declaring that they were tolerating and concealing communists and their sympathizers. <clears throat> and just as a quick note, uh, we're, the following quote we're going to read is a lot of variations online due to the fact that he, Joe, kind of. He said this a lot, and he toured with this speech, and he kind of he edited it as he went. And so on the internet, you're going to see kind of a variety of, of versions of it. Um, and all of them have the same general meaning. Uh, they just change a little bit in each telling. So it's hard to nail down what exactly he said there, just because there was also no recording at that one. There are later recordings. Well, he's probably trying to focus on certain groups and demographics when he was traveling, so he had to adjust it a little bit so yeah. it tickled their fancy. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, with all that said, in Wheeling, West Virginia, McCarthy is said to have revealed a list of 205 communists by stating something like, In my opinion, the State Department, which is one of the most important government uh, government departments, is thoroughly infested with communists. I have in my hand 205 cases of, of individuals who would appear to be either card-carrying members or certainly loyal to the Communist Party, but who nevertheless are still helping to shape our foreign policy." End quote. In other tellings of this moment in history, he said there was 57 State Department employees. And as I said, it changes a little bit. Um, and we're going to discuss that a little bit more here in just a second. Um, so the the executive order, uh, the the not the Sedition Act, the what was it called? Hold on, I got to scroll up real quick. Uh, the loyalty order. You know, the loyalty order has been put in place and they're starting to to investigate people and, and the feds and State Department, they, they're doing this report. They're running through all their employees, right? And they finally finished this report um, and they, they publish its findings. In that report, the government had found 284 people they, quote, recommended against permanent employment, end quote, which you'll note is different than the phrase card-carrying communists, but whatever. Yes. Uh, so... <laughs> Since nine, <laughs> since seventy nine of the two uh, hundred and eighty four people had been removed from the, uh, removed from their positions, McCarthy used this as proof of a communist infestation in the United States. It's also where McCarthy gets the number two hundred and five. And do you want to guess why the uh, why the seventy nine were removed, Terry? Um, that's a good question. Maybe they were working for him, or were associated with him in some way. They were gay. Oh, <laughs> and this, 
and this begins the lavender scare. Oh shit. Yeah. Um so we're going to take a quick break and when we get back, we're going to we're going to delve deeper into what the lavender scare was. Break. And we're back. So the executive order signed by Truman in 1947, the loyalty order we talked about earlier, was used to investigate all uh, employees of the State Department. The investigations were meant to root out communists, but it was also used to root out the most disloyal kind of Americans, homosexuals. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm very un-American. Very (laughs) un-American. But homosexuals were legally forbidden from working in the State Department. In the 79 people that had been removed from the from their positions were those deemed homosexuals, and this was the beginning of the Lavender Scare. From OutHistory.com, a website dedicated to the documentation of LGBTQ history, quote, When McCarthy made his unsubstantiated charges, the State Department at first denied, uh, denied that it employed any suspected communists, but under intense questioning from McCarthy's Republican allies, they did admit that they fired 91 homosexuals as security risks. Uh, this seemed to, sub- to substantiate McCarthy's otherwise wild charges and increase his popular support. Soon, outraged citizens, newspaper editors, and members of Congress were calling for an investigation. In the summer of 1950, a committee of the United States uh, Senate investigated the employment of homosexuals and other sex perverts within the government. End quote. <laughs> Your face there. But that's not... That's not sexual predators or anything. That's just the homosexual. No, 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 no. We don't need to look into sexual predators. It's the perverts, you know. And it's funny because not not a whole lot has changed from today either. You know, churches often are are you know they'll they'll handle sexual predators within their own ranks so they don't have to go to police. But God forbid, fucking people dress up in drag and fucking have a show. You know what I mean? Like those people, they're after your kids, but like these actual pedophiles are the real the church. Pedophiles <laughs> are after your kids. Well, and I think, like... and, and I think the, the argument there that everybody can agree on is like, if they're a church pastor, but they're not inherently a pedophile. If they are of the LGBTQ community, they're not inherently a pedophile. If anybody from either of those uh, parties likes to fuck kids, they're not from either of those things. They are a pedophile, you know, like it, it doesn't mean that the church is pedophilic or that LGBTQ communities are pedophilic. It's that these people are pedophiles. It's an entirely separate and different category. You know what I mean? (laughs) So in summary, McCarthy said that because homosexuals have been air quote caught in government, uh, that had to mean communists were in there too. One frustrating thing about this is that it's the same kind of conspiracy theory shit that, that like calls Michelle Obama a man or says that like Hillary eats adrenochrome from tortured babies and is a secret reptile. It It's all just bullshit. And another frustrating thing about this tactic, which is still deployed today, is that it takes just a moment to lie about something. Just one second to say something to shape the way people think. But it could take hours and hours of research to acquire an adequate historical knowledge in order to provide, like, missing information, historical context, find, like, absence of evidence for the thing, or simply to debunk it. Like, it takes, like, for some of these podcasts, I've spent 40 to 80 hours working on them. Like, it, it takes a long time to actually talk about some of the stuff with any kind of knowledge and understanding of what is actually happening here. And... Oh, absolutely. And without the misinformation from certain sources and other sources, yeah, I suppose it, you got to compare them all and come to a middle ground. And not even a middle ground, just like uh, find two or three sources that say the same thing and we can prove that this thing more or less happened, you know. 
And the other frustrating thing is like a lie is simple. It's it's simple and it takes just a moment to tell. On the other hand, the truth has nuance and it requires acknowledgement of backstory and dedication to understanding the story within its context, which, again, takes time. And I guess one of my favorite sayings to describe what I'm trying to to convey goes, quote, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. So that's just kind of the point that I wanted to make here before we before we go on. Um, no, that's a, that's a good one. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to start using that. Yeah, and it's pertinent for everything, you know. Um, European history has shown perpet- uh, a perpetually great and open hostility towards anything but ferocious straightness. In an episode coming out in a few weeks, we're gonna even talk about how straightness itself was heavily surveilled in some parts of history. But we're not we're not gonna get up too ahead of ourselves. The idea behind this was homophobia. The, the idea behind homophobia was that it was kind of religious, you know. In some parts of history, one could be executed for being gay. So historically, being gay was seen as bad, and people who practice homosexuality uh, should keep it secret. Of course, the foundation of the United States is famously credited with immigrants of all types, although the European ones seem to get all the power and credit. Naturally, these Europeans brought their religions and traditions and founded the U.S., which adopted its policies on the LGBT community up until, well, today, actually. And during the 50s, we were a nation largely bent on governing from kind of a religious position, but we had to, like, keep it on the down low, which is really ironic because that's, you know, how... Yeah, separate church from state, you know, you can't really talk about it. Well, and it, it was the same thing for gayness at this time, too, so it's... I don't know. It's, it's very funny. Separate gay from state. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at the time, laws were very much based on religious uh, on religious law, laws like prohibition, which is like you couldn't drink alcohol. Um, but again, we couldn't be officially a religious nation because of that pesky constitution or whatever. Um, religious folks always have to encapsulate their legislation like they're the way they rule through religious law, they have to encapsulate that in doing what's best for society to keep it clean. So based upon this rigid and open disdain for queerness and open queerness, uh, homosexuality had to be a secret. Um, and another thing that was affecting the way people were thinking at this time was post-World War II masculinity. During the 40s, men had uh, men were defined by a specific set of behaviors and characteristics in order to like be a man and to fight in world war one and two world two war men needed to be strong they needed to be courageous and brave the they yeah need- they were pretty fucking sexy back then oh yeah i will give them that they were very good looking especially killing nazis never seen a more <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and they needed prerequisite factors for those traits, too. Men needed, from the National World War II Museum, quote, aggression, competition, stoicism, toughness, and independence in order to prove to others that they were truly masculine. And, like, none of those things are inherently bad. You know what I mean? Those are all no. fine things to have. But when you have them in hyperabundance, like a lot of people do, it can it can be an issue. And, and it in a strange twist of fate, these same traits men needed in war would also bring them an aversion to like post-war psychological support, which we now know about, like PTSD. They used to call it shell shock, mm-hmm. but but because because of these traits that they had to embody, they embodied them to such a degree that they couldn't allow themselves to be weak and talk to somebody, which is it became toxic. Exactly, which I think a lot of people were like, toxic masculinity doesn't exist, and it's like, well, it masculinity isn't inherently bad like these traits are not no. bad at all it's when you use them in abundance and don't have anything else in your arsenal they become toxic you know 
anything can become toxic in hyperabundance. It on it's toxicology one oh one, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, same thing with water. You drink too much water, it becomes toxic to your system and you'll die. <laughs> That's exactly, yeah, that's, that's a really good, uh, really good analogy. You know, it's not inherently bad, but anyway, um, even civilian men, uh, psychological trauma could develop due to these, you know, toxic misuse of these traits. And since the lobotomy was beginning to fade as a quote, like heavier quotes here, treatment for psychological disorders during the late forties and into the fifties, there was, they were still doing some afterwards, but it was like the fifties. It kind of got out of fashion. Um, and because it was beginning to fade, psychology uh, was in what we would now see as its early days. And since psychology was largely unavailable to these masculine men, the worldview that followed them was that of lesser races fraught with feminine energy, where the practically trademarked masculine American man were the ideal specimens of, a, again, heavy air quotes here, a civilized nation. Um, so it's we could start to see how some of the, these these we're as i mentioned at the top we're, we got a meal that we got to serve and we're putting all the fucking silverware and utensils here um it's a fucking it's a fucking big table yeah apparently <laughs> it's, it's a, <laughs> there's a lot of shit on it <laughs> it's a huge table i jumped into this being like oh this will be fun and 40 hours later i'm like all right i i have to cut a bunch of this shit out because there's too much to talk about <laughs> So the Daily Beast did an interview with uh, James Kerchick, the author of Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. They start the article by quoting a line from the book that highlights the point I think we're trying to make here about the 50s. Quote, the greatest fear of the American male is that he will be born homosexual, end quote. And that he will be born homosexual? Yeah. Oh. Well, and that that's the writers look at it back in back in those days they had like a you're gonna turn me gay kind of a mentality about it but the point being yeah. is that like with all these these masculine traits the least masculine thing you could do is fuck a dude which i would argue is the most masculine i think thing. that's the opposite yeah yeah the two dudes fucking that's twice as much I masculinity. Mean, <laughs> that's dominance at its most prime yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the banning and firing of homosexuals from the State Department and the subsequent per perpetuation of the Lavender Scare were largely due to anti-gay politics within the context of the international sphere. Americans had to be seen as tough and strong, and homosexuals were, according to their logic, not that. And since Americans were trademark tough guys, everywhere else just wasn't as tough. All other nations had to be emasculated, like in we, we had to see them as, as being emasculated in order for us to be kind of the, the dominant, the more powerful kind of a thing. Which is again kind of a subdom thing. That's I don't know. It's interesting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's very popular in the gay community. Yeah, from a scientific article from JSTOR written by Matthew Mills. Quote: The larger context was the belief that Western civilization was predicated on an imperialist containment of effeminate races. These non-Western peoples, including Russia, which was considered Asiatic, were decayed, degenerate, despotic, cowardly, and a threat to civilization at large. As late as 1972, Ri Richard Nixon, God, I love Nixon. <laughs> Nixon. <laughs> Nixon, who cut his political teeth on the, on the Red Scare, was recorded blaming homos for the fall of Rome and Greece. End quote. <laughs> Wait. 
<laughs> it was the homos. The homos toppled the empire of Rome. That's the reason they failed. That, that's exactly it. Well, and I think his point is more like uh, a society weakens when we allow gay people to be gay. And you could tell because Rome and Greece both fell and had gay people in them. How long were their empires for, though? That's the real thing. I should have looked it up because I think Rome was a couple of thousand years. I want to say, yeah, I don't honestly know. And I bet somebody... Oh, and they were massive. They were huge, yeah. And they fucked dudes. And they fucked dudes. <laughs> and in fact, I believe some of their militaries were like like what you and I just said, like the most masculine thing you could do when we're out here trying to fight this war is to like get your rocks off, fuck each other. Otherwise, you'd be distracted. Yeah. You'd be horny. Yeah. And you wouldn't have as much gumph in order to go murder the bad guy. Which is funny because like incel and right-wing culture now is like, you gotta hold all your coming. It makes you more manually masculine if you hold all your coming. You lose your vital essence. <laughs> no. Um, I think you have a less clear mind and less motivation. For sure. Right after I get laid, guarantee you I'm out there to conquer the fucking world. Yeah, you're like, I can do anything now that I don't have that thing fucking hanging on my shoulders. Um, and one of the things that I find frustrating about this, uh, this idea that during the time... Uh, during this time, it was a social taboo to be gay, and it should remain a secret because of that. Insert the, I just don't want to see it in public, and don't subject my kids to it kind of arguments here. Half Same jo thing we're hearing today. Yeah. Half-assed jokes aside, if the general idea back then was being gay should be a secret, it, it then, well, if you're keeping secrets, then you're obviously, the someone who knows your secret is bad. And if they know your secret, they can use it to blackmail you. And it seems like the easier answer is like to diffuse the problematic issue is just to be fucking open about it you know what i mean you can't have blackmail if people aren't ashamed of being gay anymore so like i don't know it's it was frustrating so that could have been a little bit for it too then because they don't have leverage over them yeah if they're openly gay they're like well then get the fuck out yeah well and and i i think to the point that you're making too if you keep it illegal um then you you have that leverage you know and so by normalizing yeah. it it makes it yeah um so like yeah we could have we could have normalized it but we didn't do that um mccarthy begins the witch hunt of homosexuals and communists in 1950 and realize it's an awesome way to gain popularity and power the accusations of homosexuality began to fly freely some uh people fired from the state department were, were said to have gone from 50 people per month and these aren't gay people these are just people in general, in general. Uh, people fired from the state department were said to have gone from 50 people per, per month sorry, five people per month to 60, all for simply, like, maybe being gay. Like, maybe. And it's likely... Like being suspected of being gay, like, in Russia. Yeah. If your neighbor calls and is like, I think I saw my neighbor kissing a dude. Yeah. Send them to the gulag. Quick. <laughs> um, and it's likely some of these people who were fired weren't even gay. Some of them were just likely straight and accused of being gay. And uh, the homophobic fascism was just kind of beginning to start. On April 18th of 1950, as reported by the New York Times, quote, Guy George Gabrielson, uh, Republican national chairman, asserted today that sexual perverts who have infiltrated our government in recent years were perhaps as dangerous as actual communists, end quote. So... <laughs> I, I mean, that's, that's giving us some fucking props, I tell you what. Well, and it's not that, you know, homosexual people can't be as, you know, powerful and can't protest and cause a real fucking problem it's just that they haven't in this time and they're like the communists have blown shit up 
like in 19 and you know in the 19 late 19 teens the 1920s they were throwing bombs at cops and shit the communists were gay people have just been underground pretty much the whole fucking time and so it's, it's see but that's the scary part because you have this wonderful community of a bunch of men white men oftentimes too Mm-hmm. who were able to not only have a shit ton of money, but were able to sneak into these uh, positions of power. And I think they were afraid that all of these gays were going to get together and just fucking try to take over like the communists. Oh, yeah, definitely. And there's a little bit of, of some funny conspiracy theory stuff we're going to get into here in a little bit, but it is... Like the gay agenda? Yeah, yeah, a little bit of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, McCarthy used the authoritarian position of the Nazis he once defended by claiming that people were guilty by association in the sense that if they were labeled a homosexual or a communist, they were assuredly both. Male government employees were actually afraid to walk down halls together or hang out in pairs, fearing the accusation of being homos. (laughs) (laughs) That's where that that five feet thing came in when you're hanging out in the hot tub with your dude friend. Oh, yeah. You're, you're at least my leg and your leg apart. We can't, can't, no, no otherwise it's gay. Yeah. <laughs> otherwise, we might as well just be sucking each other off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in this way, McCarthy also enforced the idea of undermining traditional families. This put people into well-defined categories, so he created kind of an us and them mentality, which is again the hallmark of Nazi ideology. And in case anyone listening is thinking my comparisons of Josie McCarthy and McCarthyism to Nazis may be unfair exaggerations, let's look at the fact that Joe McCarthy teamed up, teamed up with Wesley Smith, a California pastor, pastor, Ku Klux Klan member, and Holocaust denier to fight against the them nomination of Assistant Secretary of Defense, Anna Rosenberg. She would later go on to be the first woman to hold that position, but McCarthy and Wesley would oppose her because, according to the National World War II Museum, Museum of World of New Orleans, quote, Rosenberg's past activities, including supporting unions and civil rights organizations before the war as a new dealer, qualified her for investigation, as did her name, which often drew immediate connections to the convicted Soviet agents Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. And again, we, we brought him up earlier. We're going to talk about the Rosenbergs again here soon. I'd like to drive home my point in associating Nazis with McCarthy. Uh, so I'd like to read this full paragraph from Smithsonian Magazine. And all of this is pertinent, but the real cherry on top, Terry, comes at the end of this. All right. Let's do it. A more troubling troubling theory popular with his critics holds that McCarthy's actions regarding Malmedy were driven by anti-Semitism. As evidence, they pointed to his casual and frequent use of anti-Jewish slurs, which even his closest friends acknowledged to biographers. Les Chudikov, his lawyer, was a heeb. A Jewish businessman McCarthy suspected of cheating him was a little sheeny. And according to Army General Counsel John Adams, the senator repeatedly referred to a Jewish staffer he disdained as a no good, just a miserable little Jew. Then there was the support McCarthy got from notorious Jew haters like radio commentator Upton Close, the backing McCarthy gave to fascist activist William Dudley Pelly. There was scarcely a professional American anti-Semite who had not publicly endorsed the senator, said Arnold Forster, who followed the situation in real time as the general counsel at the Anti-Defamation League. For years, friends recounted how McCarthy would pull out his copy of Hitler's Mein Kampf, saying, that's the way to do it, but they were quick to add... Oh my god! But they were quick to add, that was just Joe being provocative, end quote. (laughs) Oh my god! (laughs) He carried around a version of Mein Kampf, Mm -hmm. and he wasn't a Nazi. 
No, no, no. Well, and he was saying, like, that's the way to do it, but he's not a Nazi. He associates with Nazis, no. but he's not a Nazi. And per <laughs> Or a communist. Perhaps the best way to look at this is through the German eyes. As neuropsychologist Dr. Jens Fohl wrote on Twitter, quote, As we say in Germany, if there is a Nazi at the table and 10 other people are sitting there talking to him, you got a table with 11 Nazis. A person replied with, but that's simply bollocks. If you, pro if you expose bad ideas to debate, you can expose them. If you crush free speech, you become the Nazi. Dr. Full responded with a sarcastic comment, writing, This is simply bollocks. If someone wants to break into your home, you have to let them in and discuss it. Otherwise, you become the burglar. <laughs> <laughs> no, for real. Well, and before we move on, all this highlights something that Desmond Tutu says. Quote, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. So, when no, absolutely. So when I'm comparing McCarthy to Nazis, it's fucking justified. I'm not being exaggerative here, or like these are literal tactics that he's using that he's taking probably yeah, no, from Mein Kampf. So he's taking literally a chapter out of that their book. In order to, you know, force his own policies and stuff on everybody else. Yeah. So, anyway, I digress from that. We're going to get back to the, the lavender scare. Okay. Um, Truman, for his part, tried to throw a few homosexuals under the bus in an attempt to mitigate and defuse the lavender scare, but it only served to embolden McCarthyists. As they do, conspiracy theories began to pop up, discussing the international cabal that were really pulling the strings. This form of the Illuminati was tied immediately to homosexuality and, quote, the paranoid conspiracy theorists took off. The 1930s homosexual in-joke, Homin term, which was a play on the word common term or communist international, suddenly became a shadowy international cabal of fairies who plotted to control the world either for their masters in Moscow or as dupes of the red, end quote. So, so you, you I, about, I absolutely love that. You, I know. And you talked about all the, the gays are working for Russia. Yeah. It's Russia. Or Germany. It doesn't matter. No. All the gays, they work for them. Obviously. I mean, you got your gay paycheck, right, Terry? No, I haven't. Oh, Do I need shit. to contact somebody about that? Yeah, if you if you ask people like <laughs> Alex Jones, you have to talk to George Soros. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so in July of 1950, Julius Rosenberg was arrested for giving nuclear secrets to Soviet Russia. He and his wife, Ethel Rosenberg, were found guilty of espionage and sentenced to death by electrocution. One of the prosecutors, Roy Cohn, who we'll talk about more in just a second, personally saw that they were sentenced to death. So he pulled, he pulled strings behind the scene. Um, yeah, a lot. They went to the electric chair on June 19th, 1953. They were the only American civilians sentenced to death for espionage during the Cold War. Then McCarthy teamed up with Roy Cohn. As a duo, they began to attend the investigation hearings for various alleged homosexuals. When McCarthy became the chairman of the Senate Investigative Committee, Roy became his chief counsel. So and until now, McCarthy's just been like participating and asking questions. And now he's, he's the main dude, and his, his main dude is Roy Cohn. A ruthless, brutal lawyer and fixer for the powerful, Roy Cohn was known for his cutthroat, his cutthroat tactics, aggressive strategies, um, strategies he would go on to teach a young and uh, young up-and-coming businessman, presidential Republican presidential nominee for 2016, 2020, and probably 2024, Donald J. Trump. Oh my God! <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, everything. <laughs> what? Everything old DJ Tronk learned was from uh from Mr. Cone. 
Oh my god, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Cones, and it's so funny because, like, we got this Red Scare thing in a direct line to the former president of the United States, and it's if people are like yeah he's di- that, that that's an old side mentality like he was a young man when all this was going on so like i don't know oh my god <laughs> <laughs> cone's general strategy was to attack and bluff and sue if they sued him he'd counter sue for more cone would apply extreme pressure to his opponents and his best strategy was to from politico.com quote deflect and distract never give in never admit uh, fault lie and attack lie and attack Public uh, publicity, no matter what, win, no matter what, all underpinned by a deep, prove-me-wrong belief in the power of chaos and fear. Trump was Cohn's most insatiable student and beneficiary. He didn't just educate Trump. He didn't just teach Trump. He put Trump in with the people who would make Trump. Roy gave him the tools, all the tools, end quote. Holy shit. Yeah, so... We're... That, like, just changed everything for me. <laughs> You were you were a big Donald Trump supporter before? No, not at all, <laughs> not at all. I've had some neighbors that were, and I'm gonna tell you what they were some of the nicest people ever. Yeah, but they were like absolutely crazy. Just that they were infatuated. Yeah, well, and and they become kind of. I think a lot of people become feral with this kind of stuff. With like the red scare and the lavender scares, we're seeing people are just so they they they're chomping at the bit that they hear somebody go i i'll get all the communists out i'll fucking do this i'll do that that they immediately run to that person not wondering if they're lying they don't have a thought in their head about whether that person is lying because what they're saying sounds great so anyway away from old dongle trunk uh <laughs> yes please <laughs> cohen wasn't just a liar he was also a bigot everything cohen was he hated he was incredibly self-hating his public facade and private personality were drastically different cohen was quote a lawyer who hated lawyers, a Jewish person who hated Jewish people, and a gay person, fiercely closeted, if haphazardly hidden, who hated gay people, calling them fags and expressing his conviction that homosexual teachers are a grave threat to our children, end quote. So fuck Roy Cohn. For real. Yeah. Uh, Cohen and McCarthy had created a boogeyman, the gay communist spy, and McCarthy was not only using this boogeyman to perpetuate homophobic and anti-communist fascistic propaganda. Not only that, but they publicly appeared like the untouchable men at the center of like a, a, a crime syndicate like these two were like the eye of the hurricane you know what i mean it's kind of okay. like it's kind of like how again mob bosses are the untouchables that's what mm-hmm. that's what mccarthy and cone are becoming at this at this time in order to keep telling the story uh we're going to quote from attitude.com here quote Together, McCarthy and Cohn, who many years later were disbarred for unprofessional and unethical conduct, were responsible for firing dozens of LGBT people and often frightened off opponents using rumors of homosexuality. McCarthy is said to have told reporters, if you want to be against McCarthy, you've got to be either a communist or a cocksucker, end quote. (laughs) So so that's cool. Not problematic at all. We actually use the word cocksucker. Oh yeah, that is fucking awesome. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, it it's very funny because of the boldness that it. T- and he's saying it with his whole chest, so we can at least give him that. He's not being subtle about it, and like, no. you know, trying to to I don't know, do little little like if you know, you know kind of things. He's just straight up. You're either a communist or a cocksucker if you're going against what I say. <laughs> Which is but a- that would make it majority of women then too. Yeah, that's true. Because they suck cock. But that's also kind of fascistic, too, because it's like if you 
if you don't believe in what I'm saying, you're the enemy. Yeah. You know, so anyway. Between 1949 and 1952, Senator Clyde R. Huey, I love that last name, Huey, chaired the subcommittee investigating uh, homosexuals in the federal workforce and eventually produced the Huey Report, which agreed that all sex perverts were definitely security risks. Around the same time, the Wary Hill investigations were beginning to explore the same threats. Neither of these hearings and investigations let any gay or lesbian person speak. Ultimately, their investigations led them to find zero cases of federal or state department employees being blackmailed for their, uh, with their homosexual activities. So they because they all got fired. Well, they they investigated them prior, and and you know they they wanted to see if they were um, if they had released any if they were spies or whatever. And then after they were like, no, this person's safe. Then they fired them. Okay. Yeah. Um, and despite this, the Huey the Huey Commission again. I just I love that last name Huey. <laughs> Huey. Yeah. Well, and it also sounds like something you'd see in like an old uh an old Warner Brothers cartoon where he's like, that's Huey. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, despite this, uh, the Huey com Committee still concluded that homosexuals did not belong in the U.S. government because they engaged in illegal and immoral sexual activities. They also concluded that due to public interest, the government must recognize sex perverts for what they were and maintain a realistic and vigilant attitude towards the problem, end quote. They su suggested creating a central index where they could store information on known homosexuals. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like to know that database, because yeah. if we had that now, well... It's grinder. I guess we have grinder. Yeah, it's grinder too. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout their investigations, they consulted with doctors and medical experts. Sorry, consulted is the wrong word here. Consult implies yielding a field of knowledge to people who are the experts. They didn't do that at fucking all. And I mean, they, they talked to them, but mostly to ask the doctors, psychiatrists, and psychologists if they could develop a way to detect the homos. The Gator. <laughs> Gator, exactly. The experts would respond with something like, no, it's 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 really not that easy. And the committee would come back with something like, "What about their toes? Do do they have like an extra toe? How can we tell if they're among us?" And the experts would just be like, "Man, it, again, it's hard to tell. You probably can't tell by looking at them." And uh, a diagram submitted during the investigations was one used by Captain George Rains of Georgetown University to teach his students about psychology. In the center of the, di the diagram is a note that says, "Quote." Homosexuality is contained to to some degree in all personalities. End quote. So like, they're very clear. They're very upfront. They're sitting in front of these people, and they're like, "Look, it's not that simple. Everybody's a little gay. We just don't know. Yes. Yeah, we just don't know how to how to, how to figure it out." And still, y'all. I love that. I've always said everybody's gay. Some just more than others. Exactly. It's certainly a spectrum, which is kind of like the science that we're that we have today really leans in that direction and even this guy back in the 1950s was like no yeah it's not it's not simply that easy guys um and still the, com the oblivious committee continuously questioned the experts with things like yeah sure everybody's gay or whatever but like uh our question is is there like a type of radar or metal detector or something but for like the gays and lesbians all the while the medical experts were trying to tell them that sexuality is fluid and it isn't like a black and white dichotomy they tried to express the, compl the complexity of the issue to people who are aggressively unwilling to understand it and if you think all this joking is an exaggeration, here's a quote from uh, an article entitled, These people are frightened to death. 
in Congressional Investigations in the Lavender Scare by Judith Adkins. In this next section of text, you will see the actual silly things that were said during one of these committee meetings. And in this next sentence, when I say his, uh, uh, we're referring to Dr. Clement Fry of Yale University's Division of Psychi Psychiatry and um, Mental Hygiene. Quote, other medical authorities echoed his points about the complexity of the issue, the coexistence of various tendencies in the same person, and the fluidity of sexuality. In July 27, uh, in his July 26th testimony before the committee, Dr. Leonard Scheel, Surgeon General of the U.S. Public Health Service, observed, We have many individuals who are not completely homosexual. We have some who are homo and heterosexual at various times. He underscored the sketchiness of knowledge about the issue. We are dealing uh, in a gap area in a large degree. The committee, it seemed, hoped instead for clarity, simplicity, and straightforward solutions. Senator Smith asked Dr. Scheel, There's no quick test like an x-ray that discloses these things? No, unfortunately, he replied. It's a long interview affair. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, I can't even, like, this doesn't even seem real. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's so good. And, and I love it, too, because it really points out the... Uh, like when people are oblivious about when they don't know about something, it truly scares them to death, you know. And so them being like, "Is there an X-ray or something?" And this guy just very reasonably being like, "Guys, it's not, it's not like that. They don't give off a hormone or have like a, you know, as I said earlier, like an extra. There's no, you can't tell this about people because people are people. Some of them are gay, some of them are not, and it's not. It it just isn't like that. And these people are just, again, just very aggressively trying to misunderstand it. And it's it's wild. <clears throat> Maybe they're trying to figure it out for themselves. They're like, is there a way if you can tell if I'm gay? No. <laughs> Not that I know of, Terry. And, and I mean, I think some people you can have... Well, and here's the thing. Some people can have, like, characteristics that are gay. But, you know, it just turns out they're a straight person with a lisp or something, you know? So there's, like... Yeah, they're more feminine. Yeah, and so you could look at people and have, like, an idea of whether or not they're gay or not. But that doesn't... We shouldn't base that and say, like, I know that person's gay. Which isn't to say that, like... Well, like Todd Chrisley from Todd Chrisley Knows Best. I, I for the longest time, thought he was gay. But he's got children and a beautiful wife yeah. and all this stuff. But, yeah. Man. If I just interviewed him, I would be like, "No, you're a homo. You gotta go." Come on, come on, let's go. You're you're coming. <laughs> you're coming into the gay camp with us. <laughs> um, and so, in case it isn't entirely clear, again, he's like, you know, you got to interview him. You can't. Doctor Shield is like it. It's so much more than a, a a test like that. Um, but this committee, they would also never publicly hear anyone representing the LGBTQIA community during this time. And when we get back from break, we're going to discuss the Lavender Scare more and see how it impacted various people's lives. And as just a quick teaser, we're going to see McCarthy die in the next segment. So that should be a reason to stick Sweet. around. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, break. Break. Okay. <laughs> Ba-bam. We're back, baby. So... In 1952, the American Psychi Psychiatric Association released the first DSM, short for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. This is like the reference book for psychologists and psychiatrists. In this book, they officially uh, categorized—sorry. In this book, they officially categorized mental health disorders in a single and complete book. In this first public. Uh, in this first edition, they define homosexuality as a mental aberration, calling it a, quote, sociopathic personality disturbance, end quote. 
and while the description of that is sure to note that it's an illness because it involves people not conforming specifically to societal standards and traditions, it was still used to call homosexuality an illness, you know? So in the book, they, they, in a book about mental health disorders, they put in homosexuality and in their, in their, like what it is in their description of it, <clears throat> they're like, I mean, it's not a health condition, a mental health condition, really. It's just people who aren't into normal society but since they put it in the book anyway it kind of like it charges all this shit up you know what i mean well if it's in a book about mental illness then then you associate it with mental illness exactly and so you know the 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 obviously this gives the lavender scare tons of firepower and in, uh, in 1953, Executive Order 10450 was signed, banning homosexuals from entering the federal government workforce, including the military. In addition to that, in D.C., Maryland, and uh, in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, police were directed by the FBI to indicate on arrest records the occupations of a person being arrested, particularly in regards to whether or not somebody worked for or had worked for the federal government or state. Uh, or State Department. A short while later, they did the same with fingerprint cards. This meant, from these people were frightened to death, quote, a man could be picked up in California for responding to an undercover vice officer's suggestive remarks and end up losing his government job 2,000 away, 2,000 miles away in Washington, D.C., end quote. So they create the <clears throat> they create this thing where if you're arrested, you have to indicate whether or not you work for the government or not. And then after a little while, they, um, they, they do the same with fingerprint cards. So like... It, whether or not you work for the State Department, what you're arrested for, um, all these go into kind of your permanent record, as it were. Um, and a little later than that, or just shortly after that, a judicial order forced people who were arrested for disorderly conduct cases of a sexual nature to appear publicly before a judge instead of paying a fine. This would ultimately end up essentially outing these people and perhaps ruining their careers. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to if you were, if an undercover cop solicited you for, for, for sex, for homosexual sex, uh, what they wanted to do was push you out in front of a public court so that in court you had to claim that you were gay so that now they had legal documentation for this. Because again, they wanted to create kind of a database and they, they'd never quite got around to that. But what they're doing now is, is essentially tagging people like he does work for the State Department and is gay, so we can't employ him anymore. Yeah, and so it's pretty fucked up. It's very, very Nazi-ish, like with the triangles. Yeah. The triangles. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very we got to make sure we know who the homos are. <laughs> um, and Roy Cohn actually may have been blackmailing McCarthy. Um, we don't have enough time to cover all of this in detail because, again, I had a lot of, cut a lot of stuff out for um, for for time's sake. Um, but it is somewhat reliably alleged that McCarthy might have even taken male lovers himself. Over the years, there were rumors that McCarthy was a regular at the White Horse Inn, a Milwaukee gay bar, and journalists even named some of his alleged lovers. The FBI also received a letter from an army lieutenant alleging McCarthy had picked him up at a bar, and while the man was half drunk, he alleges McCarthy committed sodomy on me. Um, <laughs> which is... <laughs> I just... <laughs> The phrasing. <laughs> I know, it's so good. It's so good. Um, in 1953, McCarthy uh, was married to a female researcher in his office, and the two adopted a child, which isn't evidence for the case that he was gay, um, but many gay people would marry a member of the opposite sex, you know, to, to give them a beard, as it were. Yes, uh, I was just about to say. He has yeah. a nice big old beard. 
Yeah, and like we could speculate and say that they adopted the child because he was gay and didn't want to have sex with a woman. We could speculate and say that he adopted it because of like one or both of them were infertile. Um, we could speculate that they just wanted to adopt a kid. However way we look at it, we don't have anything conclusive, which is why I kind of left a lot of this out of the story. Yeah. And uh, and to, to be fair, um, some people have rejected these rumors and speculations, but the allegations have also led to the theory that McCarthy was, again, maybe being blackmailed by Cohn. Because Cohen had evidence that McCarthy was gay. And again, we don't have the time to talk about it. There's not a whole lot of conclusive stuff about it. But I just wanted to include this kind of stuff before we move on. Because it's going to... it's We've got to move on and it's going to get a little dark. But this is provides a better context for this story than, than I think not mentioning it. So <clears throat> We're going to talk about another dude real quick, by the way. Lester Hill. Oh, yeah. I like dudes. Yeah. Well... <laughs> Lester Hunt had given up his dental practice in Wyoming due to injuries uh, that made it hard for him to stand. He seemed to be a good potential candidate for politics. Quote, his statewide network of contacts, pleasing personality, and limitless energy inspired him to enter Wyoming politics. End quote. He ran for office and became the governor for six years before entering the Senate in 1949. Because this is the story that we're telling today, he obviously came across McCarthy's path. Hunt didn't like McCarthy at all, calling him publicly an opportunist, a liar, and a drunk. McCarthy privately vowed to get even. Soon, the New York Times, uh, a New York Times correspondent hinted, hinted at an... Essentially, this New York Times guy, he published an article that hinted at kind of an accusation, and he directed that at, at Hunt, the guy that... Lester Hunt, the guy we're talking about. And he said that he was, quote, obviously a host to hidden demons, end quote. <clears throat> and what McCarthyites, and most likely Roy Cohn himself, decided to do was dig up dirt. And if the guy you're digging up dirt on is clean, it's best to go to his family, right? And Lester's Hunt's son had been arrested for soliciting uh, an undercover police officer for sex a few years prior. When Joe McCarthy found out, he sent, quote, two of his Senate Republican Confederates who informed Hunt that if he did not leave the Senate when his term ended that year, his conviction would become a major campaign issue. Hunt feared a vicious contest that would add to his son's torments and jeopardize Senate Democrats' chances of picking up the two seats necessary to regain majority control in 1955, end quote. So... Political blackmail. It's political blackmail, but in, in it, it's obviously a sign of the times, right? That Hunt is first of all he cares for his son and he really wants his son to 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 be fine. And and I I I'm not gonna like speculate about his thought process, but anyway, he didn't want to torture his son with more of this stuff. But he's also like, yeah, but the Democrats got to win next year, and if they find out that my son might be gay, then the Democrats might not be able to. Uh, and we we've got to win okay. next year. And it, I think that's a really kind of fucked up mentality. I understand that that's the the game of politics, but it's it's really fucked up that he was like, yeah, my son, sure, my son, and all that, but also politics. What if the Democrats? But yeah, no, he he's choosing politics over his own child. Yeah, well, and as we'll see, he 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 doesn't do that actually. So it, it's a really okay. cool thing. Yeah, on June eighth, uh, nineteen fifty four, Senator Lester Hunt announced he wouldn't be seeking reelection, which took his supporters by surprise. 11 days later, from Senate.gov, quote, He entered the Russell building on a quiet Saturday morning with a twenty-two caliber Winchester rifle partially obscured under his coat. In a seemingly buoyant mood, he exchanged pleasantries with an unquestioning Capitol Police officer and went to his third floor. Minutes later, alone, Hunt pulled the trigger, end quote. Oh, shit. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> like... We talk about people being like publicly ruined uh, because of this lavender scare and shit, but it, it, there's actually an untold number of people who have committed suicide because of this stuff. 
because of the Absolutely. witch hunt that was involved in it. It, that's gonna be, gonna be the darkest part of our story, and because I didn't want to include a lot of it, but it it, it um, a member of the fucking Senate killed himself because of what Joe McCarthy and Roy Cohn did, and it's dastardly. It's terrible. It's maybe the worst thing that I've ever heard about, but it's definitely in the top like ten. And but I mean that that's something that has been so common, and even the homosexual community too is. Mm-hmm. Suicide because they feel like they don't belong and they don't get love. They're not deserving. So they do. They pull the trigger. Yeah. And that's one of the number one deaths among homosexuals still to this day. Yeah. Is suicide. Well, and it, it touches back on that point that we that I kind of made earlier where I was like, if you don't have a bargaining chip, if queerness is allowed to be open about it, you know, and it. I guess this this story is just a really sign of the times kind of story where this is the mentality that people had where if your son was gay you might as well kill yourself I guess was was kind of what this guy thought about and it's to me like hearing all of this the story it's definitely drilling back into me that history does repeat itself it does a lot absolutely because right now we're seeing the same things happening yes differently but it's still very much the same yeah, and you know, I I wanted I've been writing one, one sorry I've been wanting to write this episode for a long time, and with all like the trans uh, the the opposition to trans and stuff like that, I thought it was a really good idea. And then when I got done writing it, it was Pride Month, and so I was like, "This is perfect. This is great." But it, it it's it is history. One of my favorite quotes is, "History doesn't repeat itself, but it very often rhymes." And that's what we're kind of seeing today, and and we're that's what we're seeing okay. with the, the lavender scare here. I uh, do like that it rhymes. It's not exactly the same, but it still has the same kind of yeah feel. Yeah, it's got the same like lilt and and rhyme scheme and yeah poetry metaphor. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the suicide of a United States senator over the lavender scare on June nineteenth, nineteen fifty four, shattered the whole of the U.S. body politic. Well, maybe not the whole of it, but it. It sent huge ripples through it. Um, a little more than a week prior, Vermont's Republican Senator Ralph Flanders had introduced a bill to remove Carthy, McCarthy from his seat, likening his tactics to Adolf Hitler and, quote, house cleaning with much clatter and hullabaloo, which, <laughs> <laughs> which is hullabaloo. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and it's such an, a good old timey metaphor where he's, just, you know, he's cleaning the house, but he's making sure that you fucking know he's cleaning the house by making such a big fucking deal about it. <laughs> Um, ultimately, that motion uh, failed to get the, revo- the, the, the votes to remove him. However, another bill had been introduced to charge McCarthy with 46 counts of contempt of court. Senators spent two months at open hearings before final- finally voting to condemn him and charge him with uh, two out of uh, 46 counts of contempt. And contempt- Only two out of 46? Two out of 46, yeah. And it's crazy because they... When That's you, a lot of contempts, 46. Yeah, but when you censure somebody, you can kick them out of of their seat. You can take them out of their Senate seat. Instead of doing that, they just, just decided to hold them in contempt because uh, Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution says that Congress can censure to, quote, punish its members for disorderly behavior and with a concurrence of two-thirds expel a member, and they didn't do that at all. Um, they, they just... Hmm. Uh, yeah, being held in contempt is kind of just a little slap on the wrist. Um, but 
but that many times. I haven't gotten that many slaps on the wrist. I would have ended up in prison or well, fired or God knows what. Well, and I guess in this case, they were trying to get him with 46 slaps on the wrist, but they just got him for two. So either way, it's not. <laughs> it, it's kind of the equivalent of just being like, I publicly demount, denounce this guy, but you don't do anything about it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you're the only one. You're like, I don't like him. Well, so none of you should either. And in this case, the and they're Sen- like, well, I ain't got a problem with him. <laughs> well, and in this case, the Senate voted to, as a body, be like, I don't like what he's saying. But that's essentially all it amounts to. So it's it's kind of one of those democratic, like Democrats love to have like empty symbolism where they'll they'll like, we're gonna, you know, uh, during 2020 after George Floyd was killed, they dressed up in like uh, African clothes and took a knee in the rotunda and stuff like that. And they're like, this is a symbol that, you know, should bring America together. And it's like, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Offensive though, too. I know. (laughs) First of all, nobody gave you those outfits. For sure. Any of that. For sure. I didn't even think about that till just now. Like, I just, I just got my first dashiki. Okay. Like, I would have never have gone out and bought a dashiki. Yeah. Because I know nothing about the African culture, nothing like that. Yeah. But this individual thought that it was necessary that he gift me a dashiki. And that brought me so much closer and made me feel actually welcome in that community. Yeah. It gives you a little bit. With the dashiki. But again, it was gifted. I didn't go out and buy and be like, no. I'm going to start, I'm going to start, you know, honing in on my African roots. Yeah, for sure. But it gives you the same feeling, like, my last name's O'Brien, so when I hear an Irish accent, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm taking it back to my roots. And this gives you that kind of same experience, is kind of what I'm hearing. Okay. Yeah. Or at least that's what I'm hearing. I don't know if that's what you're saying. No, that's absolutely fair. Okay. Absolutely. Well, and... and Well, like, anytime I go to the O'Brien bar, I think of the O'Briens, which is you guys to me, not all the hundreds of thousands of other O'Briens. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it's truly a statement of representation, you know, a lot of a lot of people nowadays are like they they changed the little mermaid into being being a black girl and stuff like that. And like, I don't don't know, there's something about feeling represented, represented in this culture that we share that is extremely important, you know. It uh, is. We're supposed to be melting pot. Yeah, for sure. Well, a melting you can't pot. Can't melt if we're not represented. Well, in a melting pot that also knows where its cheese came from. You know, like we still want to know. We still want to be the chili. We just also want to have each part be be known. You know, like it. I don't know. Maybe that's a bad metaphor. I'm <laughs> feeling self conscious about it now. Now that I say it out loud, but, um, uh. You know, I digress, and we're going to get back to the script. Still, the the homo- homophobic legislation continued again from attitude.com. Quote: By the mid fifties, the re- uh, sorry, by the mid fifties, the repressive politics had been extended to state and local governments, covering at least twelve million people, more than twenty percent of the U.S. workforce, who had signed who had to sign oaths attesting to their moral purity. End quote. <laughs> oh, Christians. <clears throat> That though. That. Uh, two thousand and I want to say like nine. Mm-hmm. When I went to donate blood, I had to sign a contract basically telling the United States government <clears throat> and uh, the uh, Red Cross that I'm a homosexual. Oh yeah. And that I'm not allowed to donate blood. Oh, so they shit. had me on record. In the United States government and in their fucking stupid charity thing, yeah. labeling me as a homosexual. Yeah. 
but, restricting me from saving lives and doing other things. Yeah, and I didn't even. Yeah, I kind of forgot that that even happened. Honestly, like it, because it ties directly into this lavender scare that we're talking about. But it is really interesting that even up until. 2009 i think at some point they got rid of that rule but it 2015 is when it officially uh, got eradicated jesus that was right after apparently gay marriage was legal across the state yeah after that happened which was that was 2014 2015 then i was able to donate blood again that is insane well legally and it's insane too because it's like you guys test the blood obviously like Oh, but if I say I'm a homosexual, they won't even take it, and they won't even test it. See, I heard something different. I heard that they'll take your blood, but if you're gay, they'll basically toss it in the trash. But maybe I'm misinformed. Yeah, no. At 16 years old, they came up with a contract. Jesus. Well, I was younger than that. I was 14, because, yeah, North Dakota, 14, you can donate blood. You just need to have permission of your parents. Yeah. And they they came to the school and stuff. And, yeah, they asked me one question. They're like, have you ever slept with a man? I'm gonna be honest. I was like, yes. Yeah. Like, wait one second. I'll be right back. They Hold on, I got something contract. for you. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, they came back with the contract, and they're like, "We need you to sign this." I'm like, okay. I'm like, so can I donate blood? They're like, no. You just signed basically a contract saying that you will never try to donate blood. Yeah. Ever again. You are barred and banned from all blood donations that have to do with Red Cross. And that really kind of ties into what we were last talking about with the moral purity contracts, you know, where they they had to sign these contracts that, you know, again, 20% of the U.S. workforce had to sign these things that were like, it was such an invasion of their privacy that like it, it kind of echoes in in even the story that you're telling there right now. I Um, had to do that in 2009. So I mean, 50 years later, I'm still signing a contract. It's pretty cool and good, Terry. Pretty cool and good. Awesome. (laughs) So, so officially chastised but unpunished, McCarthy continue on, continued on as a senator for a few more years, but hardly anyone wanted to associate with him. His colleagues avoided him. His speeches fell on nearly empty chambers and, quote, intentional and conspicuous displays of in, in, inattention, end quote. <laughs> so people were like, he's like, a communist and gays are bad. And he's like yelling into the, this podium and people are just like actively reading books or like flipping through their phones. Or turning around and walking away. Exactly. I think a lot of it was actually just turning around in their seats and shit like that but yeah it's 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 very funny because he's finally getting just a small tiny fraction of some comeuppance and i think it's fun Um, oh and what is great is that just happened to trump not too long ago when he was doing his conference thing yeah and i saw a video of a dude like videoing people all the trump supporters and nearly half if not three quarters of them started turning around and leaving <laughs> like a quarter into his speech That's, which is exactly what donald trump needs but it's also going to drive him crazy both of those things are very funny <laughs> but you said mccarthy like kind of taught trump and trained him a little bit well mccarthy's right hand man was roy Cohn, the the, the gay oh, self-hating guy right. yeah and Cohn taught him everything he he wants now we could probably say that they were associated in some way or another trump and mccarthy they had to have been yeah, but I'm not draw, drawing that direct line here in this in this episode, simply because I didn't think to to actually look into it. Um, at some point, McCarthy had become addicted to morphine, and his addiction was fed the same way he got anything: blackmail. 
Harry J. Anslinger was the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics when he became aware of McCarthy's addiction in the 50s. So the head of the Bureau of Narcotics is like, oh, shit, one of our, our senators is is hooked on drugs. Um, <laughs> at some point, uh, Anslinger confronted McCarthy, and he wanted to help him control his addiction. Because if that information came out, it would look really bad for the American government. If if this guy who was, you know, the hyper-American patriotic guy was all of a sudden a drunk and drug addict... Well, you know, now we've got a whole nother kind of criminal who might as well just be a communist. So they really wanted to might as well. Yeah. Again, he wanted to help McCarthy get a control of this. And when Anslinger threatened McCarthy with cutting off his source, McCarthy simply said that he'd just go to the pushers. Um, so he, he was like, look, if I can't and I, I don't know who is giving him drugs at this time, but he's like, look, if you cut off my source, whoever is in power and giving me drugs, I'm just going to go to the streets and get drugs like you're not you're not going to stop me. So Anslinger, thinking he could keep him keep it, his addiction under control, finally gave up trying to get McCarthy off drugs and told McCarthy that he'd supply him with all the drugs he needed. His rationalization was that at least, you know, Anslinger could then control the, the flow of drugs, you know, um, and he could kind of keep an eye on McCarthy that way. And again, this is the literal head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which it, it's anyway. However, that's, yeah, no, that just brings up a whole lot of other shit. Yes, yeah, for not. sure. <laughs> well, talk about government corruption, but so throughout most of, uh, sorry. Um, however, that wasn't really the case. The, uh, the federal Bureau of Narcotics would supply McCarthy with drugs until the day he died. And lest we forget the Bureau was also like paying for his drugs. So McCarthy was receiving morphine or whatever bought and paid for, or more likely stolen from American taxpayers. So I was going to say, so the taxpayers were paying for his addiction. Yeah, it's, again, cool and good. Um, so, <laughs> so, th <laughs> so throughout, and, and also, like, throughout most of the story, McCarthy has been hooked on, on morphine, and he's been drinking like a fish. So, like, it, 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 I guess what I'm saying is, like, his addictions kind of explain his his ramblings a little bit. You know, if you're addicted to morphine and again methamphetamine, I'm not sure if he was on it, but you know, benzedrine and methamphetamine is in yeah. use. You know, all this kind of stuff could have played into that, and I I personally think it did a lot. But um, and if he was a homosexual, cocaine. Yeah, I mean, and well, and honestly, a lot of homosexual people during this time, and probably even still today, they uh, they use drugs as kind of a way to to pad their feelings on that for feeling bad about it. So I mean. It, it stands to reason that maybe McCarthy was maybe using it for that reason. I just don't know. Um, but anyway, after his censure, uh, McCarthy's censure, people would notice he changed for the worst. He looked like shit. He was more drunk, more often. He was less focused, and he was both physically and emotionally damaged. However damaged he was, he still ranted about communists in the chamber, but he seemed to be kind of a fading star. Just just shy of three years after his censure on may 2nd 1957 joe mccarthy died in bethesda naval hospital he died of a variety of things depending upon your source um his death certificate says he died from hepatitis case unknown but some sources say he died from a fever spike due to severe symptoms of like alcohol withdrawal could have been both alcohol and opiate withdrawal could have been his dead or dying liver uh it could have been anti-psychotic medications he was prescribed uh, to control his agitation which history.net thinks um maybe just a man that evil and hateful just kind of rots away like an old avocado um no usually they live forever that's actually true so the avocado thing is probably unlikely um <laughs> <laughs> um 
Either way, no matter what he died from, I want to offer him right here a hearty fuck you, and I hope he rots, rots in piss. Whatever killed him should be given a medal and declared a hero. Yeah, I hope the devil's sticking pineapples up his ass like they did Hitler and oh, Little Nicky. That's my favorite thing in <laughs> Little Nicky. Now that I'm thinking about it, that might have been my first introduction to who Hitler was. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. That was so good. Um, regardless of my opinions, Joe was dead, but his anti-gay attitudes would ripple outward in society far beyond what that stinking, that sinking stone of a man could have ever imagined. And this next part I've labeled a dead man's legacy. Before we finish, I'd like to give an example of this dead asshole's legacy, because what he left behind still echoes into today. I'd like to give a small glance into what some of these homosexual interrogations looked like, and I want to start by, or I, I want to address that by discussing Madeline Tress. In 1958, during an investigation attempting to detect homosexuals, the interviewer sat down with Madeline, Stru uh, Madeline Stress. Sorry, not Stress. Tress. T-R-E-S-S. -S. She was a business economist with the Commerce Department. They made note of her feminine dress, but also, quote, recorded what they regarded as a telltale defect. Two buttons were missing from the front of her dress, end quote. And I, hear me out. Hear me out. Because I've got a theory. I think what they were saying was, a proper woman during this time does not allow her, her buttons to fall off without immediately sewing them back on. I don't know that as a fact, but that's kind of what I'm picking up from the context here. No, that absolutely sounds about right. My mother was born back mm -hmm. in those times, and they had to prepare all their own clothes, all that shit. You did not let that just fall. Yeah, and so, so they noted these buttons from her dress, and then they began her questioning, or questioning her. She wasn't allowed a lawyer. And stress gave uh, Tress rather gave no comment when asked if she was a lesbian. After uh, so the the interviewers uh, associated her with a gay bar. You know they they'd seen her there and stuff like that. And after they had associated her with that bar, investigators continued to press her for her information, wanting to give her a job, um, but without like she she wanted to keep her job anyway. But she also had all this pressure mounting. And so during the the interview, she admitted. Uh, sorry, during the interview, she had admitted to homosexual homosexual activity in her youth, and to knowing quote known homosexuals end quote. She knew that they knew. And they knew that she knew that she was gay, but she refused to admit anything by coercion. Uh, when she said that she was attracted to women at the gay bar due to their intellectual, uh, you know, she was attracted to their minds, essentially. Uh, the male investigators uh -huh. insinuated that she was having sex with women. Then one of the male interviewers said to her, quote, how do you like having sex with women? You've never had it good until you've had it from a man, end quote. Most likely, that's what she said. No, that's what he said. That's what the, oh. yeah, that's what the interviewer said to her when when she was like, yeah, I yeah, I like women, but I like them for their their mentality. You know, they're they're like minded is kind of what she's saying. And one of the other, but you've never had sex until you've had sex. Man. Exactly, and uh, most likely disgusted, offended, scared, and hurt. She refused to sign an admission of guilt for her crime. She quickly left the office and, under the fear of being outed, turned in her resignation the next day. This is a, just an example of what literally thousands of Americans went through during the Lavender Scare. There were tons of other men and women turned into the gay stopo for simply looking like a homosexual. It's pretty dark. Pretty shitty. Yeah. Though it was the most popular in the early 50s, McCarthyism has left a massive, decades-long crater in the United States. In 1956, Cole V. Young set a precedent that made it more difficult to fire f people from federal jobs on the basis of discrimination. As little progress as that was, Florida was like, 
and you know always has been like just fuck that um (laughs) (laughs) they were florida has been and will always be the middle finger of america (laughs) um Florida was determined to go backwards. It would continue with uh, McCarthyist-type investigations into the mid-60s, focusing on gay teachers. Eventually, over 200 uh, allegedly gay teachers would be fired in Florida. Obviously, those laws don't exist anymore, but are dangerously close to coming back thanks to Ron DeSantis. In 1969, the storm police in... The, sorry, in 1969, the police stormed into Stonewall Inn, a local LGBT bar and sort of refuge in New York City. Police arrested the employees for illegally selling alcohol. Others who were not, according to New York law at the time, wearing three or more articles of so-called gender-appropriate clothing were also arrested, and several patrons were roughed up. Instead of fleeing, as the, the homosexual community had done in the past, the bar patrons rioted and began a six-day uh, riot called you know the Stonewall Riots. Pretty famous in LGBTQ history now. Very much yeah. so. It would go on to be a symbol of social and political resistance among uh, national and global fledgling LGBTQIA groups. In 1973, the American Psychiatric Association, after 21 years, took uh, took homosexuality out of the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, the DSM. And they only did that after years of activism. In 1979, the first of many LGBTQ marches would begin with the National March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights. In the beginning of the 80s, the HIV-AIDS epidemic began and was immediately ignored by Ronald Reagan. By 83, cases were doubling every six months. In 1984, Roy Cohn was diagnosed with AIDS and began an experimental drug drug treatment. Publicly, he told people he had liver cancer, although most insiders knew the truth. As Roy was dying, he was very often very publicly seen taking young men he was having sex with into clubs. According to a documentary about him, quote, He was gay, and he was sick, and he's got this child, which is a young man, he's got this child with him that he's infecting. I was looking at a broken man who was everything he didn't want to be, end quote. The, inexper- uh, the, sorry, the experimental treatment was ultimately unsuccessful, and Roy Cohn, the gay man who had taken a different lover nearly every day of the week, hateful lawyer, friend and teacher of Donald Trump, died of complications due to AIDS on August 2nd, 1986. Ultimately, after Cohn's death, his tombstone was incri- inscribed with the words, Lawyer and Patriot. It wouldn't be until the next year, 1987, that Ronald Reagan would appoint a commission to take the HIV outbreak seriously and investigate it, nearly seven years after the U.S. had first learned about it. The AIDS Memorial Quilt was started in November of 1985, and today has around 5,000 panels dedicated to 110,000 victims of the AIDS epidemic. Or they have one panel dedicated to Roy Marcus Cohn. The panel is plain and bears his name in only three words. Bully. Coward. Victim. Roy Cohn was the antithesis to what the post-World War II, uh, you know, air quote, American masculine man was. He was going, he was a gay man, bullied into pretending he wasn't. He was so victimized by society that he had become the bully. By no way does that acquit Cohn from being a shit stain that he was, but he, if he had been raised in a different society that was okay with open homosexuality, perhaps things could have been different for him. To be as clear as possible, I'm not apologizing for Cohn. He was a horribly evil person Mm -hmm. dedicated to gaining as much power as possible. And in the end, he was like banging dudes and giving them HIV. In other words, fuck Roy Cohn. But the words used on the quilt to describe him are the perfect encapsulation of his life. He was a piece of shit that left an indelible mark on society. And again, fuck him. And if you listener want to learn more about him, you can find Bully Coward Victim, a documentary about him on, I believe, Netflix. Um, 
Oh shit, they did a whole documentary on it. Yeah, ass? they did a documentary about him and he it's it's really sad. It's really fucking sad. Yeah, cuz it sounds like he single-handedly infected a shit ton of America with AIDS because he was selfish and didn't stop fucking. Yeah, you kind of get that feeling, don't you? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't mean to laugh, but it is I I have to I have it's, it's true. Yeah, I have to break the tension somehow. Um in 1995, Executive Order 10450, which, restric- which restricted homosexuals from joining the military, was rescinded. The next year, in 1996, the Defense of Marriage Act legally defined a marriage as between a man and a woman in California. From between ni- uh, 2008 and 2013, California battled with Proposition 8, a constitutional amendment that disallowed same-sex marriage. After a few years of back and forth, the California Supreme Court uh, ruled it legal for same-sex couples to be wed in California. Two years later, the Supreme Court would, the U.S. Supreme Court would legally recognize same-sex marriage in all 50 states. So that was, as you were saying, in, in 2015. Mm-hmm. In 2017, so Terry, this is six years ago, the State Department admitted investigations into sexual orientation had continued into the 90s. And since we're catching up to the present, Terry, let's leave off tonight's episode with a message from Joe Bo Jiden's White House. Well, actually, <laughs> I should have edited that out. But anyway, we're going to read from a, a Bo Jiden White House announcement. On April 26, 2023, the White House put out an announcement looking at the 70th anniversary of the Lavender Scare, calling it a shameful chapter in our nation's history and acknowledging that through those decades, 5,000 to 10,000 LGBTQIA plus federal employees were investigated, were interrogated, and lost their jobs simply because of who they were and who they loved. And the, the brief kind of talks about how Biden has rescinded bans against transgender service members and extends protections and, quote, federal benefits to same-sex partners of government employees. But he does that cool thing where he's really, he, he's sure not to pat himself on the back too hard for it. You know what I mean? <clears throat> and he, he makes sure to do that by stating, the struggle for equal for equal justice is not over. Today and in each generation, we must rededicate ourselves to ending the hatred and discrimination that LGBTQIA plus Americans continue to face. That includes addressing a wave of discriminatory laws that target them, especially transgender children, and that echo a hateful stereotype and stigma of the lavender scare. My administration is standing firmly with brave LGBTQIA plus Americans to push back against these injustices. End quote. And again, because Democrats just love making public displays of fucking symbolism, he, he puts this at the end, quote, and this is in all caps, Now, therefore, I, Joseph R. Biden Jr., and that's when the, the cap, caps end, President of the United States of America, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and laws of the United States, do hereby proclaim April 27th, 2023, as the 70th anniversary of the Lavender Scare, end quote. Which I think is stupid. Because he, he's not creating a national holiday or anything like that. Anything to remember it by. He's just. That's what it sounds like, though. He's like, oh, it's and that's, lavender scared yeah, that, day. Well, and that's, like, everybody be scared. Yeah, well, and that's, <laughs> what, remember. that's what it feels like his announcement is doing, too. He's like, I proclaim this day as a. a it's actually just this day and only this day that we remember the 70th anniversary. We're not going to do it anymore. Um, it's just this day. So enjoy it while you can. So, again. And why in April? I understand that's probably when it was enacted, but I would throw that shit in June with everything else that's gay. Yeah, and I 
yeah, it was probably April because like McCarthy's speech, I believe the uh, the speech in Wheeling, I believe that happened in February. And so I think this is two months after that when like people in the Senate are starting to echo his stuff. I'm not sure that that's why okay. I'm not sure that that's why he picked the day, but it is, you know, something that could be considered there um, in total. Millions of people were interrogated, and between 5,000 to 10,000 LGBTQIA folks were fired. Untold amounts of damage were done, and we'll truly never know the actual numbers of those who suffered one way or another. And this battle is far from over. Conservatives and various religious organizations are continuing the Lavender Scare to this day. There are anti-LGBTQ protests all over the United States. Drag performances were banned in public in Tennessee. There are currently, according to the American Civil Liberties Union, 491 anti-LGBTQ bills sitting, uh, waiting to be debated in the United States. And the end of this episode, Terry, unfortunately, is still being written today. And hopefully, one of the end, like one day, the the end of the lavender scare will happen. <clears throat> Until then, we must get face to face with anti-LGBT fascist activists. We must loudly and with all of our chest make it known that members of the LGBT community are welcome in our society and are safe. It is up to us to ensure a safe world for those who will join us here. I want to finish this episode, Terry, with two quotes. I'd like to repeat Desmond, quote, Desmond Tutu's quote we, we talked about earlier, and I want to do that again here. Quote, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And that's a really good quote because I think it kind of highlights everything that, that we're talking about here where it's it you have to pick a side. And... Yes, if you do nothing, then you are the bad guy. Yeah. And obviously, I'm going to use another quote, and in it, there, uh, Angela Davis is discussing racism, but I think it applies very adequately to, to this as well. Um, she once said, quote, In a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist, end quote. And that's it, Terry. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the end of our episode. Happy Pride Month, motherfuckers. <laughs> Happy Pride Month. <laughs> How are you feeling after all this, T? Oh, that was awesome. Yeah. No, I love that. I love this shit. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's well, and, uh, you know, what I mentioned earlier, like, it provides so much context for what's happening in today's world, too, that it it it's important to learn these histories, because otherwise it just sounds like people are trying to chop off little kids' dicks, which is something Alex Jones will say, and it's... It's not at all like that. There's a gradual process. There is like a uh, there. People have developed protocols and ways of doing these things that isn't flagrant and and just kind of willy nilly. And I don't know. It's important to talk about. It, I think so. No, absolutely. Uh, being out in Kansas City, uh, finally getting to be around a pretty large gay community, I was able to learn. I don't know so much more. Than what I thought I knew about everything that was going on. I finally have one of my very first trans friends. Mm -hmm. And I tell you what. I never would have guessed in a million years until he told me. Yeah. But when all of this stuff started coming up with the trans thing, I've never seen a friend of mine so scared in their entire life just for their well-being. Yeah. And like, it scared the shit out of me. I'm like, no, you're just... You're just like anybody else. You're one of the dudes. Like, yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how else to explain it. I didn't see many other ways. And it's one of those things that, like, whether somebody's gay or trans, like, if they're a good, kind person, that should matter. 
It shouldn't yeah. matter. It's the same if somebody's a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim or whatever it is. It's like they're people first and they got this other thing that they do at home or they've got a certain way of eating or, or you know, because even with like vegans, vegetarians, and stuff, like we love these labels because they allow us our, they allow us to separate ourselves from other people when in reality we're more yeah, we're more alike than I think that we want to give credit to, you know, and, you know. Oh, and that's just it too. Uh, my friend Logan, all we did all day was talk about dick and gay shit. <laughs> like, I'm like, no, you are one of us, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, and it's truly, it's it's bro talk, but it's homosexual bro talk, you know? And uh, again, it's just an example that everybody's the fucking same, really, you know? <laughs> like, when you boil Absolutely. it down, it's... I could only imagine if back then we had the trans we do now, because, yeah, Logan being female to male... But being two years into his transition, you couldn't fucking tell to save your life and said unless you've seen him with his pants down. Yeah. Well, and you know, to 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 pair with that, it's like it's also nobody's business. Unless you're going home with Logan, whatever the fuck they're doing, whatever the fuck he's doing, that's their you know, that that's whatever people want to do, that's their business kind of a thing, you know. Exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. And again, like and, I, and I've seen it firsthand even at work when I worked with him, like People didn't know whatsoever, and guess what? They treated him like any other individual. Yeah. But as soon as he either told or somebody else told them, things would change, and it made no fucking sense to me. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of that comes just from people being afraid to offend, you know? Because a, a lot of the conversation nowadays is like, well, if I get your pronouns wrong, I don't want you to, to be yelling at me and stuff like that. And it's like, man, nobody's going to yell at you. They'll try to correct you. And if you continue to use it intentionally. To, in, if, well, and you can tell when somebody uses the wrong pronouns on purpose yeah. versus on accident well, it, because it can be hard. And it goes it goes to say that, like, that's not people treating you like shit because you can't learn their new name it's most likely you being a fucking asshole and not trying and that yeah. no exactly that part maybe that's a part of the conversation like i know his his father still sees him as a girl unfortunately and he just can't get over that he's like why he's the last one in my entire family <laughs> to be okay with me being a dude who likes dudes so in his dad's mind He's a straight woman who's just sleeping with dudes and looks like a dude. Well, and it truly goes back to like, man, it for me, it's like I've never, I don't understand transgenderism personally in regards to like I don't feel that way, but it's also not mm -hmm. mine to understand. If people feel that way, if people have those feelings, those are still valid feelings, whether or not I understand them or not. You know, I oh absolutely, and, and I think that that's, I think that that's more the issue here where it's like her his father doesn't have to get it you don't have to understand it you just have to be there because guess what they're it's like i don't understand how people like vagina yeah exactly you don't have to get it you just have to be like cool good for you i guess you know like whatever so you like what you like cool <laughs> well anyway thank you terry for joining me on this episode i appreciate it so much Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And you listener, you can find us on Facebook at Black Sheep and Bad Apples. Give us a like if you enjoyed the episode. Give us a share, maybe. Do some some social meds if you'd like. Um, and thank you for listening, listener. Um, we'll talk at you soon. Bye.